Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along I get a number of books sent my way by publicists and sometimes they take on incredibly important issues but only very rarely do they make the learning as captivating and enjoyable as Flock Together, a book by today's guest, B.J. Hollers. Extinction of birds can hardly be considered an upbeat topic, but B.J. has created an enthralling look into the loss of bird species, both in terms of the animals and the humans and the human events that accompany these extinctions. And he also looks at the people and birds that are still here. B.J. Hollers is founder and executive president of the Chippewa Valley Writers Guild and associate professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. We join B.J. Hollers in his living room for today's show. B.J., thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. I was intrigued when I saw the title of your book, Flock Together, A Love Affair with Extinct Birds. Then I started looking into the other books that you've written, and I said, I think I have to have this guy on. But let's start this program with you reading the poem that you used at the beginning of the preface about the dodo bird. I think it's a great peek into both whimsy and depth of feeling that is connected with the loss of species. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So this excerpt of the longer poem, it's, um, I'm going to butcher the name, Hilaire Belloc, I believe, titled The Dodo from 1896. So I'll read a few sentences here. The dodo used to walk around and take the sun and air. The sun yet warms his native ground. The dodo is not there. The voice which used to squawk and squeak is now forever dumb. Yet may you see his bones and beak all in the museum. In the museum. <laughs> I love that rhyme. It reminds me a little bit of Ogden Nash. But I was intrigued to start off with that. Of course, when we speak of extinction of birds, dodo, I think everyone knows about that, even though it's so many hundreds of years ago. And then the passenger pigeon is the other one. But that's not the mainstay. This isn't the central course in your book. It's the ivory-billed woodpecker. We're going to get to that detail. But first, I want to lay the background from looking through your other books, I didn't have a sense of you as a birder, as a bird watcher, but somehow you got interested in birds, and you tell the story of a woodpecker. And by the way, I live out in the woods, kind of, so I actually have that happen frequently. Sometimes during interviews, uh, here comes the knocking, the woodpecker. Tell how you got interested in birds. Well, right. And, and the first thing I like to make clear to folks is I'm not a birder. If anything, I'm a budding birder. It's not for lack of loving birds. I, I really do love the experience and I'm growing to be a better birder day after day. But I'm an amateur. And I think one way I try to approach this book is making it very clear to readers 
I'm just a guy with a, a set of binoculars who began taking the earbuds out of his ears one day and realized there was birdsong in the air. So for me, this introduction to birds really came as a result of a trip to a local kind of thrift store here in, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin called Savers. And I was there one afternoon uh, with my son and kind of browsing the used books. And I came upon this 15-year-old book called Extinct Animals. And it was a coffee table book filled with photographs of extinct animals. And I was just so shocked to find out that we could fill an entire coffee table book with animals that are no longer here just since the beginning of photography. So, you know, the past 150, 175 years, we've had enough species go away that we can fill a whole book. And that terrified me, to be candid, when I wanted to learn more about these creatures that are no longer here. And again, one of the things I observed is your books are not about environmentalism in general. I mean, that is perhaps a topic that gets touched upon, but your books are about a wide array of topics. Environmentalism, does this have some root for you particularly, or is this kind of new? You know, I, I'm new to all of this. As I mentioned in the book, I'm, I'm sort of like a, a half-hearted recycler at the beginning of this. You know, I certainly wanted to save the planet and do the right thing. I just didn't quite know what that meant and how that worked into my life. As a result of writing this book, I see it everywhere. You know, the environment, I realize, is not just backdrop. It's the fabric of our lives. And so while it's easy to kind of walk through your daily life just not even noticing the world around you, now I, I listen to every bird I hear, think about the trees, and try to figure out what's the name of that bird? What's the name of that tree? And in doing so, I think we can come to care about them a lot more. Your comment, which I saw in the book as well, about taking the earbuds out. Were you an earbuds in type of guy before that? You know, I think I was. You know, I'm a young father. I'm, I'm teaching a lot. So in the 15, 20 minutes I get when I, you know, walk to work while going from one thing to the next, I always enjoyed kind of trying to get a little bit of entertainment. And then I realized there's something better than entertainment. There's something better than what the earbuds can provide you. And that's actually engaging with the world around us, you know, and taking a moment to observe the birds I can currently hear outside my window right now and to think about the beautiful landscaping, how, how these flowers, I didn't even notice this yesterday, the clouds, anything. It's just, I claim to be a writer. I should be observing the world around me. And so that's what I've really gotten into the habit of doing as of the last year or so. In the book, you mentioned a couple times that for ornithologists, that people who get a passion for this kind of thing have their spark bird. And so could you talk about your spark bird? Is it somehow the ivory-billed woodpecker, which is no longer here, but what's your spark bird? Right. And I was always really fascinated with that phrase, spark bird, the one that gets you motivated to continue down the path of being a birder. And strangely for me, it was the ivory-billed woodpecker. It was the bird I could no longer see that became the one that opened my eyes to all the birds I still could see. I was just fascinated by the fact that birds that were here, you know, 75 years ago or less in some instances, simply are no longer here, and oftentimes as a result of decisions that humans have made. This isn't always just a natural occurrence extinction. While it certainly is in, in most cases, oftentimes in the case of the ivory-billed woodpecker, in the case of the passenger pigeon and others, you know, we're responsible. We've got some bird blood on our hands. So while I think the ivory-billed woodpecker was indeed my spark bird, having removed to Wisconsin a few years ago, another bird that kind of served that purpose was its cousin in some ways, the pileated woodpecker, which of course is sort of a doppelganger of the ivory-billed woodpecker in a lot of ways. And so every once in a while, one of those big pileateds come and, and knocks on the, the tree behind my house and it just startles me. It just makes my heart skip a beat. It's the closest I'll ever get to seeing an ivory build. 
I realize you're not necessarily a scientist, right? You're not a biologist. You're not actually a history major. But I have a sense that you could have gone either way, that English may be what you teach at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, but that, in fact, history seems to have a real strong pull on you. Still, there's some elements of science that you have to learn to be a birder. And one of them is, what is a species? Because one of the questions I had in the book, when you mentioned the pileated, which we have a couple of out by my house, where I live in the country here, I'm always amazed when they come by because the downies and the harries are so small compared to that gigantic thing, the pileated. And you comment that there's a little bit different coloring on the front. And that's how you recognize it, the difference between that and ivory-billed woodpecker. My question was, what makes a species? Because when I talk about the extinction, I sometimes have talked to people who are in social work, and they say, well, what's important is people who cares about one little kind of bird. Can you tell me any kind of major kind of bird? You know, have lions died off? Have tigers? Have birds died off? You know, they're concerned about this set of creatures, which we call birds, or set of creatures, which we call lions. And so just one kind of lion, or that doesn't matter to them as long as there's other tigers. What is a species, I think they're defined by the fact that they don't interbreed. That might very well be the distinction. There are so many ways to define it that I haven't fully wrapped my head around either. And that's what got tricky with this book, because within the species, you have the subspecies. I mentioned a lot of different variations of the ivory-billed woodpecker, including one version that supposedly still may have a few representatives in Cuba. But there's a slight distinction. It's a subspecies instead of the species itself. And so you're right. People are pretty fast to say, well, maybe we lost this bird, but we've got this word, which is basically the same thing. It's really not. And plus, the point is different. The point is we are often responsible for entire species or subspecies going away. And that's not much better. If we only lose a subspecies, we're still losing a major community of bird or any species. One thing I really want to impress upon readers is this idea of it's in our power to make the choices that will ensure that we can share a planet with these creatures. Aldo Leopold has this great quote in his essay on a monument to the pigeon, where he talks about while humans are the captains of this ship, we don't have the right to necessarily dispense with the crew. And I think that's very true. You know, just because we may be the dominant species on this planet, that doesn't mean we can just get rid of everything that's not us. E.O. Wilson, a famed biologist, talks a lot about the future. And some people have talked about how the future might be a single species, just us. And if that were to occur, the name E.O. Wilson has for it is the age of loneliness. And I think that's just a really moving way to think about it. I think we want a diverse planet in terms of species. When we do away with creatures, when we lose parts of an ecosystem, it's hard to know when we'll lose the ecosystem entirely, including our own. That reminds me of a quote, I think it's attributed to Chief Seattle. If all the animals were gone, humans would feel a great loneliness. What about spirituality for you? Where does this come from? In the book, you mentioned at one point, for instance, in Genesis, I think maybe by the second chapter, that people are given dominion over the animals. And so it's like you just contradict that with the quote you just shared. So how do you think about dominion and the Bible and what we're authorized to do? I've heard different translations of the word that we use as dominion. This very idea is something that I researched in depth on a previous book from the mouths of dogs, what our pets teach us about life, death, and being human. And I went to a lot of pastors and spiritual figures and religious figures and asked them that very question, what does dominion mean for you in your reading? 
And more often than not, in fact, and I think in every case, everyone I spoke to said dominion means caring for them, you know, looking out for them. It's not do what you will with them and harvest them for this, that, or the other. All the spiritual leaders I talked to had, I think, a more progressive view on things. It says we are here and we can, we can take care of these creatures. We can assist and be a part of their world and they can be a part of ours. And I'm no biblical scholar myself, but to some extent, the Garden of Eden might prove some of that. If you look at other scripture in various religions, there's often people who are caring for other people. That seems to be aligned with what generally a lot of religions call for. And so the fact that we would take dominion to mean caregiving role, to care for the world around us, that seems to really align with the larger um, issues of faith that a lot of these religions and spiritualities seem to fire toward. Because you seem to be very well-read, BJ, I'm assuming that you know that a lot of scholars believe that in the Garden of Eden, people were vegetarian, and that when we come back into the peaceable kingdom, again, we'll be vegetarian at that point. And that'll touch on something you talk about, the difference between what birder used to be and what a birder is. Around 1900, there would always be a Christmas hunt and something changed. Could you tell the little history of that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, uh, prior to 1900, um, there were these great hunts, uh, these Christmas hunts, and essentially people would go out in kind of a social event with their families, and they would just shoot as much as they could. didn't really seem to matter what was in season per se. My understanding is guns would be brought, and people would go out, and they would kind of harvest the forests and make big piles of dead animals and take pictures of them, and that was how Christmas was celebrated for a lot of folks. As in four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie, is that part of that Christmas feast? It might be. I think feasting was certainly kind of part of the idea here. And if you look at some of the photographs, it's staggering, you know, how many creatures have been killed on Christmas Day. So in 1900, Frank M. Chapman organized a Christmas bird census. And essentially, it was just a departure from the go out in the woods and shoot what you can days. And it was more of let's track what's actually out there. Let's keep our eyes to the skies and track what types of birds we're seeing, how many we're seeing in what locations. And that information was really a precursor to the modern Christmas counts that Audubon has continued to these days. And so even today, the Audubon Society holds various Christmas counts around that season, and it really provides a great opportunity for citizen science to really wield some power and do a lot of good. You quote some statistics on the growth of that from the 25 people or whatever did it the first time in 1900 to what's more recently thousands, hundreds of thousands. I don't know. It's, it's kind of amazing that you have this many people participating in citizen science. And you participated in that. You tell the story of your first Christmas count. Steve Betchkel, who's kind of your mentor, was part of that. Could you share a little bit about your experience of your first Christmas count? Which, of course, this is in Wisconsin, which is not known for its warm weather. Well, it certainly wasn't warm. I'll remind you of that fact. Yeah, it was a chilly couple of days when we went out together. It was incredible. You know, it feels so good to meet new birders, to shake some hands, to get in some cars. Everyone has binoculars around their necks and bird books and just kind of seeing the world in a different way and kind of really being present and attentive to the world around us. That first Christmas count, Steve and I uh, saw this wonderful ring-necked pheasant kind of flutter right across the street, which was really cool. We saw some golden eagles and then some bald eagles kind of side by side. And it was just, for a budding birder such as myself, every time you see a bird, it's pretty exciting. But when you see the golden eagles and the the immature bald eagles and the pheasant, I mean, it was just a really powerful day that helped me understand how many creatures are out there. You just have to open your eyes and look. Now, I mentioned before that sometimes in reading the book, I had the sense of you as a historian 
and actually, when I usually think of English professors, I think of people who are into poetry or that kind of stuff. And you have enough writings that are, I guess, artistic or it is drama writing, it's storytelling. But you seem to stay very close to reality rather than telling fictional stories. Do you also write fictional stories or are you really firmly tied to this reality and, and trying to maybe heal the world? That's what I have a sense of is you as a world healer. Well, that's very, very kind. You know, I think I just, I hit a point in my life, maybe when I became a father, where I realized, you know, if I'm not writing toward spreading important and powerful information to the widest audience possible, then I felt like I wasn't doing my job as a writer, which is not to discount fiction or poetry. Both of those, of course, have their own way to get at the human heart. But I always was fascinated by the stories of the people that often are underrepresented to begin with. And so while I would hope that we lived in a world where the facts alone might drive people to make important decisions related to the environment or what have you, I found more and more that it's the stories that really touch people and persuade people to think about whether or not they're recycling, for instance, or whether or not they're remaining present in their world and thinking about the natural world around us. I really tried to focus on not just the stories of the birds we've lost and keep losing, but the stories of the people who've tried to save the birds and continue to try to save these birds and in our world more generally. We're going to talk about a couple of those other books a little bit later. We are speaking with B.J. Hollers. His current book, his most recent book, is Flock Together, A Love Affair with Extinct Birds. But as you already commented to me before we got on the air, B.J., you're already writing your book. You're deep in your next book. So there's this disjuncture between what we're talking about right now and what you're already living into. Let's talk a little bit more about extinction because the healing of the world part of it is particularly important important to me, which is why I do Spirit in Action. It's how can we find ways to heal the world, make it better. Recycling is one, but being aware of the creatures we share the planet with and how important they are is essential. Most people have some dim memory of something about the dodo bird, but I think the one that's got largest consciousness is the passenger pigeon. And I think you make the comment, and I think it must be quoting from other people, about billions to none Tell about what happened with the passenger pigeon for those particularly who aren't filled in on the history. You know, it's really an incredible story. From billions to none is indeed a phrase that's been used from, by several scholars. There's a documentary that was made on the 100th anniversary of the last passenger pigeon. That anniversary was around 2014. Martha, the final passenger pigeon, we call that an endling, by the way. The last representative of a species is called an endling, which is a phrase that just rocks me to my core every time I think about it. She died in the Cincinnati Zoo, and 100 years later, we started to kind of uh, reassess what happened. And what's really compelling about the story of the passenger pigeon isn't just the fact that they went from billions to none, from one of the most abundant birds on the planet to zero within half a human lifetime, within 40 years, but it was the first time we realized that we could do that. Prior to that, I don't think humans fully understood just how much power they wielded in terms of whether or not a species survived. But due to overhunting, due to increases in various technologies, most notably the telegraph and the railroad, suddenly hunters were able to tell each other where the flocks were going. They could kill them rapidly. They could place the birds in barrels and ship them to the nearest market. And it was an eye-opening experience. As I said, you know, suddenly humans realized, holy cow, we took a species that we thought we would never be able to kill in entirety and, and did just that in 40 years. And so it's really, I think, one of those prime examples of just how much harm we can do when we're not paying attention or when, in fact, economics overrides ethics. And what was the reason for it? I mean, I understand that when they were shooting the buffalo, 
they're trying to open up the plains, and so how do you get rid of Native Americans who are already occupying there? You get rid of their food source. I mean, there's a purpose like that. Passenger pigeons, I'm not used to thinking of eating birds that way. Is it more of the syndrome of the 4 and 20 blackbirds? Did people want to have, you know, a dozen? Because billions, I mean, that is a lot of birds. Why would one spend that much on ammunition to kill it? Do you have any sense of the motivation for that extinction event? Well, the best book to learn more about this is Joel Greenberg's book, A Feathered River Across the Sky. And it's just so compelling to read about how we did this. I mean, in fact, they were eaten for food. They weren't very good food, but they were, I guess, cheap and easy to kill, at least for a while. And so it seems like it wouldn't be worth the ammunition. But after a while, he just stopped using ammunition altogether. They used nets, they used fire and smoke. And it was just like shooting fish in a barrel, just, you know, plucking down passenger pigeons from the sky. And then it got more and more difficult to do so. And the industry was struggling. So eventually there were, there were none left to kill. And so I think that's sort of in our mind's eye, such a compelling thing to think about, how there was a time when passenger pigeons literally blotted out the sun. Literally, they would fly over Chicago and paint the city white uh, with their droppings, you know. And then there came a day where... You know, hunters would go out and they, they couldn't find a single one. So, yeah, I, I just think the magnitude of this story going from billions to none is really profound and, and really speaks to, again, kind of an ethical moment in a crossroads for all of us. And the passenger pigeon really isn't the center of your book, Flock Together. And by the way, folks, we are speaking today with B.J. Hollers. He is Associate Professor of English at the University of Wisconsin in Eau Claire. He's got a whole raft of books that he's produced. Flock Together just happens to be his latest one, A Love Affair with Extinct Birds. I want to talk to him a little bit later about his book, 13 Loops, which is about the last lynching in America. And there's another one called Opening the Doors, Desegregation, University of Alabama. Those are two that are particularly interesting to me as Spirit in Action. And this is Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, you find us at northernspiritradio.org. That's O-R-G, like in organic, not commercial. On that site, you'll find 11 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find links to our guests. So when you want to track down B.J. Hollers and all his books, the link to bjhollers.com is on our site. So just come via nordenspiritradio.org. There's a place to post comments. And we do love two-way communication. I can't stress how important that is. We love hearing your voice and your input so that we can make our program better. So please post a comment when you visit. Also, there's a place to donate. This is full-time work that is 100% supported by listeners, not by government, not by corporations. It's because you, the listener, want to continue it. But even more important than supporting Northern Spirit Radio, Radio is to support your local community radio station. Local media is so crucial. It's absolutely important that you start by supporting your local community radio station. Again, BJ Hollers here, and we're in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I'm sitting in his living room. His dog's right next to us, and, and we heard crows outside just a little bit ago. And we're right in the city. And yet the birds are everywhere, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But let's get back to extinct. Now, so again, passenger pigeons, they're not your bird that you're pursuing here, the, a story with, a history with. The ivory-billed woodpecker is. You could have chosen maybe the heath hen, the Carolina parakeet, but we're in Wisconsin, not in Carolina, so maybe that's why you wouldn't choose the parakeet. So ivory-billed woodpecker, why that particular bird? 
you know, of all the powerful stories of all these species that have gone away, the ivory-billed woodpecker was always especially compelling to me because of its potential to come back. I remember being uh, an undergrad in 2005 or so and picking up a copy of USA Today and reading a two or three inch headline about the fact that they thought they had spotted this ivory-billed woodpecker in Brinkley, Arkansas. And, and before too long, and actually beginning in 2004, I believe, uh, several organizations got involved, the federal government got involved, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, everyone began working together to find this species. There was about eight seconds of video footage. They thought they knew what this thing was. And so all hands on deck, here these people were thinking, we're going to potentially search for a bird that we thought has been gone since the 1940s. And it's such a wonderful idea, at least in theory, you know, that a species might come back. We call them Lazarus species, you know, one that we thought was gone that might still be hiding somewhere. And it really just sparks something in our imaginations, I think. That's what was part of what compelled me, not the fact that it was gone, but the fact that it may, in fact, have come back. Now, having said that, the the story of how it initially went away back in the 40s is also really troubling and, and hard to swallow. I mean, the short version there is there was a doctoral student from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology named James Tanner, who from 1937 to 1939 traveled to 45 different locations in search of ivory-billed woodpeckers and finally found a few in the Singer Tract in Louisiana. He was there. He made some recommendations for how we might save this species. It involved more selective logging practices for a Chicago lumber company who had leased this land. And what's so troubling about this the story is despite all of these folks who were on board, money that was raised to encourage the Chicago Lumber Company to just relax on the clear cuts on this very small portion of land, you know, behind closed doors, the Chicago Lumber Company said, you know, we're just money grubbers. That's a quote. And they continued to cut. And that's the reason none of us will ever likely see an ivory-billed woodpecker again. It was because of a, a decision based on economics by a small group of people who decided for the rest of us what was good for us. And it's tragic. You know, I think that's why we have to be very careful about the role government plays or doesn't play in protecting our planet, you know. And when these decisions are being made by corporations exclusively, it's not always with the average citizen's best interest in mind, and certainly not in the case of the ivory-billed woodpecker. And that kind of thinking is absolutely crucial these days, where we've just had a person appointed as head of EPA who really wants to get rid of the EPA and environmental protection. Who cares about that stuff? All we need is money-grubbing, I guess, a quote that the Chicago Lumber Company used. In the passenger pigeon, it seemed to be hunting and for food that's the issue. Here, it's just like, well, we don't care about those birds. Who cares about the snail darter? Who cares about these other animals? That's just one. We've got plenty of other birds. Let's get rid of it. So it's a very different reason for causing extinction in this case. In the book, you list a number of the people who weighed in. I guess FDR was concerned about this. It went through the Department of Interior, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. How could they not prevail? Was it because there was zero legislation? I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, he had been interested in conservation. He was a hunter, too. But there's a switch that happened somewhere between the early 1900s where the way that you engaged with the natural world was to go out with a gun, and it switched to a place where you go out with a pair of binoculars. Somehow, the mentality has lagged, is lagging right now, Could you talk a little bit about the transition in thinking that did happen and which obviously isn't 100% yet? Right. Well, in the old style, you know, you'd see a bird, you want it to be a specimen in your museum, and you would shoot it and stuff it and put it in your museum. 
But we've certainly made some good strides away from that mentality, and it changed primarily because of two developments. One was binoculars, as you mentioned, and the other was field guides, bird field guides. And so now people seem to get a similar satisfaction, if not more so, in spotting the bird and identifying the bird and counting and tracking the bird. So even today, there's a lot of great websites, eBirder and things like this, where folks can log and track what they've seen and share this with communities all over the place. In the old days, again, the satisfaction was in shooting, stuffing, preserving, These days, it seems we're more interested, hopefully, in preserving what's here, what's living and breathing already. Um, And there are plenty of examples when we weren't. You know, there's a story early on in this book about Alexander Wilson, who in the 1800s spotted an ivory-billed woodpecker, wanted to sketch it, so shot it so he could sketch it. He didn't kill it. He injured it. Then he chained it to a mahogany table in a, a room in an inn in Wilmington and sketched it for three days while this bird suffered and eventually starved to death. And it's just tragic to hear him describe this bird, you know, whose wails sounded like grief, who people thought it was actually a child screaming. I mean, it's horrific to think about. And yet he said he later regretted it. But to think about capturing a bird who's desperately trying to peck at the window pane, trying to get back out to its world. And instead, because he wanted to sketch it, the bird died. You have to ask yourself, is it more important to have a sketch of a bird that you killed or to have the bird itself flying through the treetops? And I think we all have to come to our own conclusions of how we feel about our surroundings and how we want to protect them. There's one concept that you brought up in the book, BJ, that was stunning to me to think about because oftentimes we think of the person who finds, uh, you know, maybe I found an ivory-billed woodpecker, and then they have to face a conundrum because if they tell other people about it, even the people who want to preserve the bird come and crowd out and end up resulting in the death of the bird. How do you relate to that idea? I mean, birders are out there. You talk about the hawk owl that's from Canada that somehow ended up here in Wisconsin for a period and everybody would go and watch it. Evidently, that did not scare it away. But isn't that an issue that when you're going into nature that you're, in fact, going to be decreasing the habitat for the animal? You know, that there's a lot of risk in something like that. And so having to find a way to do it ethically, to not disturb these creatures, to not intervene, to keep your distance, peer through binoculars, those are all ways we can do a better job of it. Uh, I think to a, a speech Wendell Berry gave in 2012 titled, It All Turns on Affection. And I really love that phrase. He was speaking about our connection to the land and nature, but I think it really applies to species too. You know, it all does turn on affection. The truth is we only care for things that we care about. And so one way to care about something is to get to know it, to get to see it through those binoculars, to get to experience it in life. I'm a big proponent of going out there. I take my son out to the woods as often as we can. We get our walking sticks and we pack our bag full of goodies and we go out there and sometimes we see some stuff, sometimes we don't. But either way, we can kind of allow nature to soothe us in some ways and to give us a sense to have conversations and talk about plants and animals and memories in ways that we simply aren't privy to when we have 15 screens all around us and phones ringing and records blaring and everything else. And so I think at an early age, helping people understand that there's real value in in getting away from the many distractions and just trying to commune with the the natural world, there's a real benefit to our souls. BJ, because I'm a vegetarian, some people assume automatically that I'm going to think that hunters are evil, and I don't. 
In fact, one of the things I'm very aware of is that hunters often care about the world, exactly what you just mentioned, that which we know we can care about. And hunters actually care that there's wilderness and that there's birds out there and that there's deer and there's so on. Some people might caricature them. All I care about is getting my buck and I don't care about the rest because I don't care about what happens next year. That's just not true of most hunters. How do you relate to hunters and thinking about that? And I take it you're maybe not a hunter. I get that sense from the book. You know, I'm not personally, but I have a lot of admiration and respect for sports people who take that very tact of, you know, this is our natural world. Yes, I'm out there communing with it, occasionally killing an animal with the proper regulations in place. But often I think they are the key to defending our wilderness. To any sports people out there, I mean, you are the key. I think letting your representatives know that you value public lands, that you value protecting these wild areas is crucial. And my father's a great example. He's not much of a hunter himself anymore, but a few years back even, he'd go out in the woods and hunt, and he would do it in a very unique way. He would literally carve himself a bow and arrows in the backyard, and then he'd go bow hunting with the bow and arrow that he carved himself. There's a lot of respect to be had in that situation. I'm not sure who ever even got a deer under those circumstances, but he did it right, you know, uh, he, and he, it was more about getting out in nature anyway than necessarily bagging the buck. But I, I really have a lot of respect for folks who, who do take the time to go out and get to know nature and to respect it in the many ways that sports people often do. You've already described yourself, BJ, as an amateur birder. You're not really up to your neck in the knowledge. You're a person who's still cutting your teeth on it. And you refer to, what is it, bird watching for dummies or whatever it is. So you're not an expert that way. But what you are is a writer. And I have to say, folks, this is easy reading. It's compelling reading. It's got depth to it because it comes through personal stories. Again, the book, Flock Together, A Love Affair with Extinct Birds by B.J. Hollers is quite a treat. And so I have to commend your reading. You, the gift that you're bringing to birds is maybe not that you're a biologist, but that you can tell the story and the history of it in a way that makes us feel part of the family. And that's the thing that's lacking for so many people when we are surrounded by screens, B.J. So thank you for doing that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about some of the stories that you tell in the book. You tell of an interaction between someone called Francis Zierer and Bill Shorger. Francis was an immigrant to this country, and he, he was from an area, Slovenia, or somewhere around that. It, it's part of what we used to know as Yugoslavia. But he migrated to this country, and eventually he settles, I think it's near Hayward and Birchwood, which are north of Eau Claire by an hour or two. He's settled there in a time when that was really much more wilderness than it is now. He's an amateur, but a meticulous observer of nature. And so Zero is out there in the wilderness, and he develops this correspondence with Bill Shorger. Talk a little bit about that, because their personal story and the connection that they have to the birds is so compelling in the book, Flock Together. Yeah, you know, and, and their story is kind of a great example of what this book is all about. You know, the birds are certainly a major part of this, but it's about the people and the stories of the people involved with birds. And so, in brief, the story of Francis Zier and Bill Shorger is pretty interesting. I came upon their correspondence, their letters uh, in the archives, and it was so neat to read 
the letters they wrote back and forth to each other over a 15-20 year period. Here are two men who come from very different walks of life. Again, Francis Zier is a guy who lived in the remote cabin near Hayward and then later Birchwood, Wisconsin. And Bill Shorger was a professor at UW-Madison for a time. And so one was very much in the city who would retreat, it's my understanding, on the weekends and when he could to kind of get into nature as often as possible. But then you have Zero who never got out of nature. He lived there full time. And as a result of that, he had a front row seat to nature in a way that few people did. Um, Wisconsin's got a great tradition of these folks who get out in wilderness and have these really unique ways of viewing the world, the natural world. And so over time, he would write these beautiful, beautiful essays about what he saw, these various birds and what they did. And he described them with just raw beauty, you know, I mean, Lots of writers can write about nature in a scientific way, but he did sort of what I strive to do in this book was to write about it so beautifully that you can't help but remember, you can't help but care for these creatures. And so through their correspondence, we really see two parallel lives of naturalists, environmentalists between the 1940s and and early 1960s. And it was really neat to see these two men from different backgrounds and different experiences really communing through their correspondence about the role of nature in their lives. I think Zero had to face that quandary Did he see one of these birds? I think I mentioned earlier, do I let people know? Do I keep it to myself? Right. Zier is often credited with spotting the first goshawk here in Wisconsin. And it's a a difficult story to deduce. There's a couple different versions that I've read, but indeed that he spotted some goshawks and he made it known to some folks at the Milwaukee Public Museum. They took some photographs. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing what you can find when you're the only one out in the woods, you know? So he really got to know the goshawk and he really had to reckon with, I think, whether or not you keep the secret of what you've seen or whether you share it with the wider world. And that's something I think a lot of folks in these worlds really think about, even in the case of the ivory-billed woodpecker, when it was thought to have reemerged in 2004, it was kept very quiet for quite some time for fear that it would become a, a perhaps a, a media circus too early, you know. Um, and so for about a year, that search went on with no one really knowing much about it outside the inner circle. And you mentioned Zier talks about the encroachments of society. Now, my understanding is that much of Wisconsin was clear-cut. I don't know how much old-growth forest we have still in the state. So I think at one point, Wisconsin was flattened. (laughs) And so Zier, living up in the woods, was he living in second-growth woods by the 1930s? Well, you know, he comments directly on how over time the landscape had changed, you know, and certainly lumber industry was huge in Wisconsin. Um, A lot of the Paul Bunyan stories come from this neck of the woods. Certainly Eau Claire, Wisconsin benefited dramatically. It was a lumber town until, of course, the turn of the century when, when the trees sort of went away in the same way that some of the birds did, you know, and there's probably a connection there. When we destroy habitat, that's when we lose the species who live in that habitat. And so understanding that connection is crucial. And it's just another example of, do we make a buck or do we preserve our wildlife? And of course, there's always a middle ground to be found there. And so kind of searching for that middle ground, perhaps rather than one or the other might be one way to kind of proceed in the future. We can still create jobs, we can still utilize natural resources in a responsible manner. At the same time, as we protect our wildlife and the creatures who inhabit our natural resources. Again, something I'll say in your favor in this book, BJ, is you're not heavy-handed in terms of the prescription. Here's how we solve the problem. It's not a political discourse. As you say in the title, A Love Affair with Extinct Birds, you're cultivating love in this book. It's how I experience it. And therefore, the question comes up, well, how do I care for this person that I love? 
and this person in this case is maybe it's an ivory-billed woodpecker, but it's also the downy and the hairy woodpecker and all the other birds and other animals and the dog that's sitting right by us as we speak. And yet the constant background that we're very aware of, it's been described as the sixth mass extinction that we're in the process of, that we're losing species more quickly. A lot of them are microbial, mind you, and small things. But another phrase I ran into in the book that I really loved is that our ecological system is like a Jenga tower. And when we take out this species and this species, it becomes more and more tenuous. Anybody who's ever played Jenga knows that there's a limit. And when you get so tenuous and that pretty soon your breath is going to tip this over. Did doing this research, did learning to love birds feel like having to embrace despair? Yeah, and this is one of those questions that keeps me up at night. You know, when I give talks about this, my wife always says, you know, you're being too much of a downer. Show some silver lining here. And I really, I try to be hopeful, but I think I'm not necessarily being responsible in what I found if I also don't help us face some hard facts. According to E.O. Wilson, famed biologist, again, he estimates that the current rate of extinction is between 100 and 1,000 times faster than the normal rate. And according to him, this is something we haven't seen in 65 million years since dinosaurs, you know. And that's the kind of fact that should hopefully give us pause. Some people just want to throw up their hands and say, well, there's nothing I can do about it. But I'd argue that we should be empowered. You know, there's something you can do in your backyard. There's a feeder you can put up. There's someone in town you can call. There's a habitat you might save. And I think the best way to do these things is just to get a group of folks together in your living room and start talking about what you can do to make your backyard better, to make your small slice of the planet better. We don't need to make major policy decisions from each and every individual, but there are certain things we can do, you know. And so really trying to understand that the agency is ours, you know, that if you care about your garden and the birds that inhabit the trees, then, then do what you can. And you don't need to solve the problem, but you can do something to move us in the right direction. You know, I've heard a fair amount of discussion about species going extinct, and microbial is one of the ones that you, you mentioned, actually, in the book, is a big part of that. My sense is also that there are species being born, and I know that, you know, they'll go into some remote area in Amazon Basin or Africa or whatever, and they'll find species they didn't know about. And certainly we have things like Ebola, you know, there's species there that did not exist before. So are there new species coming in if we're losing at a rate of a thousand times, or maybe we at least offsetting that by creating some more and maybe in our laboratories? Well, we're certainly finding new species all the time. And so there's this great report, the International Institute for Species Exploration out of Arizona State University that offers a role of species, you know, and who's where, what are we losing, what are we finding? And certainly we find a lot of new species too. Again, they're mostly smaller species, not a lot of different varieties of elephant out there these days. But it really is compelling to know there's a lot more out there that's being discovered daily. Often doesn't make the headlines, but there are things that are still in the universe that, that haven't been discovered. And so there's some hope there. But at the same time, when you're, when you're losing creatures, again, from human-induced extinction, not just as a natural biological part of extinction, that's where the problem is. For me, my beef isn't the fact that species are going extinct. That's all part of the natural world. My concern is when it expands at an alarming rate based on the actions that we're taking daily. I think we have to at least acknowledge that we're involved with that and maybe take some responsibility and rethink what we're doing. 
we've already mentioned some of the reasons why extinctions happen. Some of it's avarice. Some of it's just a venal lack of consideration for the effect that we have on other species. But loss of habitat's a big one. And I'm quite aware, I grew up in a family of 12 kids. I remember how many people we had in a house. That kind of square footage per person is, I understand nationally over the last 50 years, has quadrupled or greater. That, in fact, we have houses and yards and such that are that much bigger because we need our personal space. Are there other reasons for loss of species that you can talk about that you've come in encounter with as you've done your research on birds? Yeah, and there's certainly many reasons why creatures go extinct, and I'll leave it to the scientists to speak more specifically, but you hit the main one. Habitat loss is huge, and so we really need to be mindful when we think about you know, where we're building, what we're using, what resources are being used as we go deeper into that habitat. When it comes to birds, there are, of course, other threats. One that was sort of shocking to me was housecats. Housecats, I think, is maybe number two after habitat loss for really being a major threat for birds. And, you know, you don't think about these, you know, cats at your feet batting at the ball of yarn really being that much of a major threat to birds, and yet they really are. So being mindful, too, of, you know, whether we let our cats go outdoors and, and, you know, what they're killing and kind of taking stock in that, there's something we can maybe do just being responsible cat owners that would help the birds out a bit, too. So, as I said, there are ways we think about things that we just completely overlook. A third one would be windows, skyscraper windows in particular. You've got all kinds of birds running into these windows and dying. And so there are ways you can put certain stickers up and and ways that windows can be designed to limit this. But yeah, it's not always habitat loss. Sometimes it's things that are very much in our control just as individuals, you know, making sure that our windows aren't so clean that a bird will run into them and die and making sure that we, you know, pay attention to our own pets and what they're doing out there when we're not paying attention. I've probably said clearly enough already, BJ, about how much I love your writing. I am intrigued by the fact that you write about a lot of subjects that are not just poetry, or not just here's a good human passion, but that they're situated in, I would call it social justice and world justice frameworks. How did you get influenced in this direction? Well, I've had a lot of mentors over the years and a lot of teachers and professors who've helped. But in terms of the writing world, one guy who really stood out and kind of showed me how you can really change the world with words was Ray Bradbury. And I'm not a huge science fiction guy, but certainly his work always really spoke to me. Even as, you know, a seventh grader, I've always been really interested in, in his work. And the one that sort of links with this book is a story he wrote called The Foghorn. And it's about this um, sea creature that comes from the depths and hears this foghorn blaring its horn out and the sea creature thinks it's another sea creature he thinks he's finally found a mate and so he rises from the surface and bleats out his call and then realizes after all of these hundreds of thousands of years of being alone he's still alone it's a foghorn and he freaks out and kind of slams the foghorn around the people inside are rushing out and it's just so tragic to think about being the last of a species so that's the story that always stuck out to me in relationship to this particular book. But in high school, I wrote an essay about the subject was, you know, pick an American who changed America in a dramatic way. And it was a national contest. And, you know, everyone wrote about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And I wrote about Ray Bradbury. And shockingly, it won the contest. And so one day I get this, I get this phone call from Ray Bradbury who says, hey, Ray Bradbury here. And I nearly dropped the phone, you know, and he wrote me a letter. And, and as we're talking on the phone, here I am, a high school what junior or senior, I believe, can't believe I'm talking to my literary hero 
I'm in Indiana at the time, and I just lied to this guy. I said, hey, you know, I would love to shake your hand. I, I'm in the area. I'd love to say hello sometime. He's like, well, just come on over anytime. And so my mother and father were shocked to hear that I was getting on a plane and going to L.A., but that's what happened about a month later. As I believe a senior in high school, I, I jumped on a plane. I found a shuttle from the airport. It dropped me off in Ray Bradbury's neighborhood, and I sat in the rain for about two hours until my time when I said I would be there. And then I, I knocked on his door, and he took me into his home and just was so generous. We had a correspondence that lasted for about a decade. I went back and visited him one last time before he passed. And it's just amazing who will reach out to you when you're a young writer. You know, people will write you back. They'll say hello. They'll even take you into their home sometime, which was my experience. So that's something I've really tried to pass on with current amateur writers. You know, that generous spirit, I think, is something we can all learn from. Let's comment about a couple of your other books. I mean, we could talk about From the Mouth of Dogs and Dispatches from the Drowning Sightings. This is only a test. We could talk about those, but two that particularly piqued my interest. One was called 13 Loops, Race Violence, and The Last Lynching in America. And the other one, Opening the Doors, Desegregation of the University of Alabama and the Fight for Civil Rights in Tuscaloosa. So obviously, those are powerful social justice issues that are being confronted there. How did they grab your heart? I mean, you've got your spark bird. What was your spark for those books? You know, I think one of the things that's always interested me as a writer is trying to give the megaphone to other people or to try to give voice to the voiceless. And in the case of 13 Loops, I wanted to write the story of a 19-year-old African-American named Michael Donald, who was hanged in a tree by a pair of Klansmen in 1981. I always have to repeat the date because people can't believe that there was a lynching, essentially, in Mobile, Alabama in 1981. But in fact, there was. Uh, Michael Donald was walking back from getting a pack of cigarettes at a nearby gas station, and along the way, he was abducted by a pair of Klansmen who were upset about a ruling in a trial there in town involving a white police officer, an African-American alleged murderer. And so though Michael Donald had nothing to do with this case, maybe didn't even know it was happening, he was murdered as a result of the color of his skin. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time and had the wrong color skin, for these Klansmen at least. And so I heard this story... I heard about the Southern Poverty Law Center's fight to try the Klan and essentially bankrupt the Klan as a result of this case. Uh, and I was wondering, why is no one else really talking about this? I had never even heard about this before, and I lived just a couple hours away at the time. So that's really what compelled me to write this story. And as for opening the doors, same situation. I was teaching African-American literature at the University of Alabama, and I'm a white guy from the North. You know, I was people jokingly referred to me as a carpetbagger in some ways. And I was just so profoundly surprised to learn that a lot of my students didn't really understand the story of desegregation at our university, which, of course, had made national headlines in June of 1963 when Governor George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door just, you know, 100 yards from my classroom at that time and said he would not move and he would not let James Hood and Vivian Malone, the two African-American students, to enroll at this public institution. So I told myself, you know, before I leave Alabama, I really want to share this story. And it was such a joy to knock on doors, to make phone calls, to get to talk to a lot of the original people involved in these scenes to figure out what they did to ultimately desegregate the university, all the different ways people helped to make that happen. And so my hope isn't just to tell the terrible parts of these stories, but to really highlight some of the heroes along the way and the people who deserve credit for opening the doors at the university, for trying the case that ultimately bankrupt the Klan. You know, I certainly don't want to be devil's advocate too much, right? You know, I, 
I am actually a religious person. <laughs> so I have to ask, what motivates you, your spiritual religious background? What motivates you to pick one side of the story? I mean, I imagine the people who were part of the clan were also good, family-loving people. If we tell their story in a certain way, I think we can end up loving them too. What is it about your religious spiritual perspective that leads you in the direction you go? Well, certainly forgiveness is a big part of the civil rights stories. I mean, I think the most moving example of that occurred at the trial of Michael Donald, where one of the murderers was at the stand and he looked directly into the eyes of Michael Donald's mother and begged for forgiveness. And she gave it just like that. And it just still gives me chills that a woman who had lost her youngest son can look her son's murderer in the eye and unequivocally and without hesitation, forgive him for what I can only imagine is the greatest trespass one human can do to another. And so I think that story has stuck with me, and I think about it a lot. My own kind of personal faith is, so I'm sort of new to it. You know, I've seen some terrible things. I've sat on the couches of folks who'd lost their their brother in this instance to Klansmen. You know, it's hard to know that someone who shares my skin color could do such a horrific thing to another person purely because of that person's skin color. But as a result of my recent project, it's titled The Ride Rolls On, Rediscovering the Freedom Riders on the Road South, I found myself attending a church here in town in Eau Claire, mostly for research. Um, one of the, the people I profile, one of the Freedom Riders, is a guy named Jim Zwerg, who I learned was an associate pastor of this church back in the late 60s. So I started going to this church just to get a sense of, you know, what's this place all about? How did a Freedom Rider once walk in these hallways and preach at that lectern? And, you know, I kept going back again and again. I started realizing, you know, if it's good enough for a freedom rider, I should be taking a closer look at all of this. And I really have found that particular church to be very progressive in its views on social justice. I think sometimes people get a bad taste in their mouth for religion because I think people sense a bit of hypocrisy and, you know, the Bible says these things, but then people act in these very different ways. But that's certainly not been my experience at this place where people practice what is preached, you know, and when it says to open one's arms and to accept these folks, that's sort of how I want to live my life too. And so it's been reaffirming in a lot of ways to see that forgiveness can be real, as is the case with Beulah Mae Donald when she forgave her son's murderer, and also to see men like Jim Zwerg, who before he was a man of the cloth, was a young white man from Wisconsin who was willing to board a bus and get beaten within an inch of his life to try to make sure that social justice and equality was there for everyone. And so I've been going to First Congregational Church here in Eau Claire for the past year or so because I think you know, it really does reaffirm a lot of the values that I write about, you know, caring for the earth, caring for people of all walks of life, regardless of religion, regardless of skin color or sexuality or gender or anything else, you know. And so that kind of inclusivity has really been a part of that church to my mind. And so that's the kind of religion I think I'm looking for, one that's hoping to open arms to all folks and to build a better world together. There's a lot more we could talk about, BJ, but I think we're going to wait with bated breath for your next book. Again, the book we've been talking about mainly today, Flock Together, A Love Fair with Extinct Birds by BJ Hollers, is an awesome story. It's story more than it's lecture, and that's one of the things I really love about it. Your writing in general intrigues me, and I think there's a couple other books now I have to read. And so I appreciate you for exposing me to more of the love affair with birds. I certainly watch them out my window regularly, but I think they're a little bit more part of my family because of your writing. So thank you for doing that, and thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate it. 
Again, B.J. Holler's website is bjhollers.com. You can come via nordenspiritradio.org, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.